0: I say, for for me, it's that purity of they come along, they're psychologically distressed, they've not got a label, you normalise stuff, and then you enable them to go on a particular journey, and you just choose the appropriate tool for them to go on that journey.
1: Hello, and welcome to this clinical podcast from BMJ Learning. I'm Heidi Lightfoot, one of the editors at BMJ Learning and in this podcast I'm going to be exploring how GPs can assess and manage patients with anxiety and depression and how to build a supportive therapeutic relationship with them. Nigel Cowley is a GP from the Denmark Hill Medical Centre in Bournemouth in the United Kingdom with a special interest in mental health and we asked him for advice. Firstly, how to approach the consultation and assess the severity of a patient's depression.
0: I guess for me this is about making sure that when the patient comes in to see you, you've got no sort of preconceptions about what they're there for. And you allow them to tell their story in their own time. And I'm really particular about telling it in their words. There's a sort of purity of the language that they use. And once you interrupt them, and once you start using your own language, A, it's sort of... It interferes with the flow of the whole consultation and, be it sort of contaminates what's going on. And for me, the, the purest way of starting a consultation is just letting someone sit down and then you can observe them as they're walking in and if they're trudging in and their shoulders are down and they're obviously looking low and they're looking slow down, you're already thinking, OK, this, this person is psychologically distressed in some way. And when they sit down, again, I'm very keen that I don't say anything. If I can just sort of sit forward and raise my eyebrows and just in a sort of non-verbal way say, you know what, time's yours. And also it's really important to make sure that they don't get a feeling that there are time pressures. One of the problems of modern day general practice is that everybody knows how busy we are and that When you are depressed and anxious, it takes a lot of guts to actually come along to see your GP, to share those feelings and emotions, and that we need to respect that, and we need to give them the time so that they can tell us what they want in their own way.
1: So, it's important to let the patient lead the conversation. However, Nigel recommends bearing in mind five common areas of distress and appropriate interventions for these.
0: I often find that there are five areas of psychological distress. Um, People worry about finances, they worry about their own personal health, they worry about their job, they worry about their relationships and they worry about friends and family. And that when you are looking at a sort of way of psychologically supporting someone, you need to be exploring where it is. Actually, sometimes in terms of those psychological things, um, when you've got someone coming along who is psychologically distressed and you can't find out where it is, you may have to actively explore those. And you go through the five reasons and we say, look, where are you in terms of that? But you are then focusing your therapeutic intervention as to where the problem is.
1: Sometimes it can be hard to build a rapport with patients, and you may suspect that they are not disclosing everything to you.
0: There are, there are some times when patients are a little bit economical with the truth, um, and for me this is very hard, you see that you, you need to develop that rapport, you need to feel as though you are um, with them in terms of their story. Now, If you don't get that feeling, if that patient just isn't interacting with you, then I think there's every probability that they're not going to give you the full story. And for me, there are two sort of main groups of people. There there are the, the patients who are potentially psychotic, who are guarded and paranoid, and then you're almost certainly going to be down a different route. Again, you're back to this idea of how safe are they what should I be doing, and it, can I trust anything they're saying because they're giving me information on a need-to-know basis. But often with those patients, they're not coming in to see you spontaneously. You've got a an inkling of what's going on because someone else has brought them in and there's a story that things aren't quite right. And then there's the group of patients who are just a little bit reluctant. Uh, and I, I find teenagers are particularly difficult in, in this area. Teenagers are shy, they're a wee bit ashamed about the story... Um, they have difficulty communicating anyway. And I, I often feel as though the, the, um, the collateral story of, you know, why have you come along today? Well, my counsellor at school said I really should see the GP because they're so worried about me. Well, why are they worried about you so much? And you can see there's a cage in, us in terms of where they're at. And that's very difficult. Uh, And I guess in those situations where I have anxieties, I am keener to make sure that the door is open for them to come back. Um, And for most patients with depression, I will review them in a week or two. Uh, For those patients who have a significant suicide risk, I'll probably see them the following day or I'll follow them up with a telephone call within the near future. And I think that serves two purposes. One is that they are reassured that someone cares. And that thought that someone cares for you um, is fantastically therapeutic. But also it just means make sure that they don't get lost within the system. There's nothing worse than seeing someone and... I've forgotten all about them and they don't come back and these patients need to be actively followed up when you've got a thought that they're not safe and anyone with a moderate amount of anxiety and depression is potentially unsafe they could simply get worse and even though they started off as being relatively mild anxiety and depression if that journey is downward that's potentially unsafe as well so actively following people up is hugely important.
1: Assessing someone's risk of harm is also a key part of the consultation. How can those questions of suicidality and self-harm be broached?
0: I, I guess over the years I've found that introducing questions about suicidality and introducing it at the right stage, it feels natural and the patient's half expecting it. And then being able to assess, well, just how far are they in terms of this? So I see a lot of patients who are very low indeed and for me there's a sort of getting hit by a bus question so I've seen someone they are um, expressing desires of gosh life is hardly worth living and what I like to say is well okay look if you were run over by a bus how would you feel about that and quite often they'll say yep that's fine So you've already assessed that actually they feel as though they would be better off dead than alive. Okay, what about being more active? What about actively ending your life? And then you're into those protective factors. If you get run over by a bus, the people who are left behind will not feel responsible for your death. You actively kill yourself, then those people who are left behind inevitably feel guilt and actually how how is someone in terms of that place and if they're saying to me you know what I don't think anyone would feel guilt or there are no people who are left behind who they feel would be in the least bit troubled by it and then you're on to those deeper seated questions of well actually it sounds to me as though you've really been thinking about ending your life how far have you gone in those thoughts Have you actually thought about when, how, where? And if you've got a good rapport going with someone and it's been taken in a sensitive way, you'll get an honest answer. Because remember, someone's come along to you in the first place. These people want help. The people who I find kill themselves and you can't do anything, they're not often going to come to the GP. These are people who maintain an element of normality around them and then suddenly in their lives. And for those guys, I don't think there's anything we can do. But for the people who come in to see us, if we take the opportunity, we can support and help them.
1: And what are the next steps if you think someone is at a high risk of harm, especially last thing before services close for the weekend?
0: So this is uh, the Friday afternoon scenario where you've just seen someone and you know what they are not safe they're seriously at risk we've asked them the bus question they happily step in front of it no hesitation doc what about your friends and family actually you know what they'd be better off if I wasn't here well I want to know what you're going to do when you leave this room now when you leave the surgery what are your plans And if my plans are, oh, actually the idea of the bus was a good one, I think I'm just going to go off to the high street and just step in front of the first bus. I don't want you to leave the surgery without me being sure that you're safe. So please, back to the waiting room. I'm going to phone up my colleagues in secondary care and we will get you support and help this afternoon. And when I phone up secondary care because Friday afternoon, this is not an easy thing to access. I am going to stress that I've got someone who is going to kill themselves this afternoon, unless we do something now. And I guess I have the benefit of a good relationship with my colleagues in secondary care. And I only phone them up once every five years with a conversation like this. So I have an expectation that they will respond urgently to to that situation. Um, There are other patients who are suicidal but who are able to say okay you're listening I can see there's there's help available and I think for me this is about enabling them to believe that we can get you better. I've seen people in this position before where they are in an extreme situation and life seems incredibly black and they've got better. And we can do that with medication, with talking support and with intensive support and help. And I want to tee that up for you as soon as possible. But I want from them a promise that they will be safe. If I've got someone who is socially isolated, they are unemployed, single and very vulnerable. And you can see their self-neglecting, they're losing weight, they've not slept for ages all of my alarms are going and they're not safe. So for that individual, I'm still going to get them seen that that afternoon. But if that's not the case, if they've got a partner at home and that partner is aware or we can make them aware of what's going on so they're not living by themselves, then I think that getting them help within the next two or three days is safe, providing that they can reassure me that they're not going to do anything stupid.
1: Let's move on to management and the role of antidepressants.
0: When you've uh, decided that someone is psychologically distressed, it's a case of, well, what what do we do next? I I know that when I first started practising, I had great faith in antidepressants. I thought, you know what, these are fantastic drugs, they work really well, and why would anyone want to put themselves through the trauma of going back to all these horrible psychological traumas. Just stick yourself on a tablet and you'll get better. And I remember one very sobering time when this lovely lady came back to see me a week after I'd seen her for her um, depression. And she said, Dr Cowley, I feel great. I thought, another one ticked up for antidepressants, another great success. Uh, And she said, I feel great because I didn't. Take your antidepressants. What you did was effectively sort of allow me to feel psychologically distressed. The fact that you confirmed that it was okay and that you were worried about me sufficient to give me medication made me think, you know what, that's okay. And that within a couple of days of seeing me, she was better but she was better because I guess I'd sort of normalised her symptoms, not because she'd taken the antidepressants. So that was a sort of sobering thought. And the other sobering thought was when I did an audit of my patients who were prescribed antidepressants, and I found that only 50% of the people who actually prescribed antidepressants to were actually taking them two weeks later which is pretty appalling, really. And I flipped that on its head and I thought, okay, what am I doing wrong? And it's quite obvious. What I was doing wrong was giving them my solution to their problems. And that's so disrespectful. And I now realise that when someone comes along and you're looking to support and help them, you need to enable them to find their solutions to their problems. And often I like to just ask the patients what they've done already. What sort of things have you tried? And then go on to ask them what they would like to try. And the strategy builds on where they are at. Now, if you do that, you are working with your patient and you are enabling them to build their own solution to what's going on. And quite often they'll tell you straight off, I don't want to take tablets. That's fine. And reassuring them at that stage, that's okay, you don't want to take tablets, that's great. Now I may come back to that if actually they're happy to chuck themselves under the bus and that they've got no supportive mechanisms because we're into someone with severe depression. And when you're into someone with severe depression, medication is really important. But I don't want to put their backs up and I don't want to affect that rapport. I want to be able to make them feel that actually all options are available I'm working absolutely with them. So if they're saying, OK, I don't want medication, that's great, we go down that avenue. And then you are looking at, OK, what sort of things you want to do? If they're exercise junkies, but they haven't been exercising recently, great, start exercising again. The evidence base for exercise is that it's almost as effective as taking antidepressant medication. I do not like to prescribe antidepressants at the initial consultation unless they've taken antidepressants previously. If they've taken antidepressants previously and they've come along and we are in that sort of discussion of what what do you want and maybe there's a degree of relapse prevention there, Maybe if there's going to be some new psychological therapies available, we might be considering that. But quite often you're thinking, OK, restarting antidepressants in this situation is OK. If that's not the case, and if there's a new case of depression, then often I will send them home, maybe give them a PHQ-9 questionnaire. Sometimes those questionnaires really are of value, but actually enabling someone just to think a little bit in the meantime. Maybe I'll give them a questionnaire about looking at their sleep pattern. So a little bit of work to do and get them back within the next two to three days. And at that stage, if they want to, start them on antidepressants. And when you do that, your concordance, compliance rates is round about 90 plus percent. So far more effective.
1: What if your patient is keen to try antidepressants? What should you bear in mind before writing that prescription?
0: When I'm um, thinking about starting patients on antidepressants, I like to have a discussion with them about how antidepressants really work. And I think an easy way to think about it is this this concept that an antidepressant is an emotional painkiller, that when you are going through some pretty awful times, that they just dull those horrible experiences. That stuff which makes you fret and you worry about it, it just, that's fine. And that's really important if you've got someone who is emotionally distressed. Being able to ease that pain is great, but it's got a dark side, that It takes away the bit at the bottom and it provides a little bit of a safety net where someone isn't going to drop down so low that they're potentially unsafe. But at the same time, it squeezes the top end that some of the good things in life may be not experienced to the same effect a lot of patients who start an antidepressant say, look, I I want to stop this medication because I'm not enjoying life as much as I used to, that it flattens that bit. And certainly there are a number of patients who you've taken away the pain and the distress of being depressed and stressed, but you've also taken away some of that drive that actually, you know, a little bit of that sort of emotion is important in terms of enabling people to get off their backsides and do stuff.
1: And how should you support patients to come off antidepressants?
0: We're looking at someone who's been on antidepressants for a period of time. Remember that ideally you need to have been on antidepressants for at least six months after you've got better. And generally speaking, people are going to feel better, what, six to eight weeks after you've started the antidepressants, and why do we leave it that that period of time? Uh, so it's th- so that things can be changed in their life, so the stuff that may have been causing the depression is now gone, and when they stop the medication, those predisposing factors are no longer there. However, when you stop antidepressants, there is risk of so-called discontinuation syndrome, and... You no, know, these are sort of flu-like symptoms and insomnia and irritability. But also amongst all those symptoms is depression. So you have this difficult situation that when you are stopping someone's antidepressants, they may well feel depressed because of the discontinuation syndrome. Uh, and if you don't get it right, they'll simply start it up again. Uh, and that's very tricky. To A large extent, I try to nullify that by putting people on antidepressants which are less likely to cause discontinuation at the outset. So choosing antidepressants with a longer half-life, and classically fluoxetine is a really good one. It's got a half-life of about, about 10 days. And it's one that you can stop, and it'll wean itself out of the system without any problems. And you can very honestly say right at the start, absolutely no addictive potential with these. But let's say we've got someone who's had predominantly anxiety symptoms at the outset and they've ended up on prozac or venlafaxine, which are great for treating anxiety, but absolutely tricky in terms of stopping because they've got short half-lives. Now, for those patients, you've just got to support them and say, OK, we're going to wean you off this medication slowly. You may expect some symptoms and you give them the sort of headlines of what the discontinuation is about. And I like people to feel in control of the medication. So if when they're coming off it, you know what, doctor, this isn't working, and I'm getting symptoms, well, go back up to the previous dose. And that should quite quickly reduce the discontinuation syndrome. Uh, but then, OK, let's just try it a little bit later on. And being supportive. There's some recent research which has shown that patients who are on long-term antidepressants Roughly about 20% of them should be able to come off their antidepressants with the appropriate support at the end of the day. The problem with patients being on long-term antidepressants is that the longer you're on antidepressants, the less likely you are to be reviewed and the more complacent we are about prescribing antidepressants. I remember antidepressants long-term, they're not entirely safe. You've got risks of GI bleeding and stroke. These drugs do affect life expectancy and we should be doing everything we can to get patients off it, but maybe we can get a little bit sort of complacent in terms of patients being on depressants
1: thanks to dr cowley for sharing his experiences and offering us this advice if you'd like more on managing patients with depression and anxiety visit bmj learning also have a listen to other clinical podcasts from bmj learning and best practice on our soundcloud page thanks for listening
0: and if you enjoyed this podcast please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.